How big are these bonds? I mean, are there a lot of them? Huge. Okay. Huge. Okay. <laughs> One minute. Uh, 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 big, bigger than anything. Bigger than any, any cereal coupon market you've ever come across in your life. Okay. All right. So, Mark, I've got a joke. Yeah. So, really, the most important joke that you could ever tell, ever, of all things. Please go ahead. <laughs> all right. Do you know that there are two kinds of people in the world? There are people who think there are two kinds of people in the world, and there are people who know better than that. <laughs> yeah. No, the reason I'm thinking about this is because I just read this piece by the Stellenbosch economist, who I really like. He just read a report, some research, around the question of whether or not, based on the sort of idea that there's two kinds of people in the world, there are people who believe that life is a zero-sum game, and there are people who believe the opposite, that it's not a zero-sum game. In other words, that by helping each other, we progress forwards, right? Okay. It's an interesting idea because there is no question that the world has become a better place over the last 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 100 years. It's just extraordinarily much better place. If you say so. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, just economically. I mean, I don't know whether it's a better place. No, you know, no, no. It's just interesting that more and more people in the developed world believe that the world is a zero-sum game and that in order for you to move forward, somebody else has to move back, right? So uh, I was just wondering, what do you think? Do you think we live in a zero-sum world or do you think that we live in a world in which gradually we progress? That's a complicated question. I, I tell you this. I do believe in the notion that we could all rise by some good force right? and that good can create momentum, which is positive for everybody. It's like right. uh, medicine that can heal previously devastating afflictions on children and things of that nature. However, I read in the Scientific American this week that the possibility exists for living a million years. A million years. So that's us humans, okay? Because they found organisms below the seabed that had been there for hundreds of millions of years and we're still alive. So I don't understand those kinds of numbers, but take longevity as a positive force. It's not without its detractions. So you eventually end up with vast overpopulation. You eventually end up with five, six, seven, goodness knows how many generations living in one house. You eventually end up with clogged up C-suites full of old people still in charge and we're seeing an increase of that. I think the, the issue is, can you all advance without any side effects? Can you take a pill that fights obesity without it destroying other parts of your functional ecosystem inside your body? And so I think there are prices to be paid, but I'd come down on the side that virtue can prevail. That's where I'd come down. There's no question in my mind that we do not live in a zero-sum world. I just think the evidence is in. Just for example, my, my number for this week I might as well blurt it out now. How many people will enter the middle class in 2024, next year? A hundred million people. So that means that basically 50% of the population will be middle class by next year. That is incredible. It's incredible, isn't it? Am I just too positive for my own? Good, yeah. Anyway, let's talk about something more South African, which is more of a zero-sum tinge to it. CEOs. This past week, an enormous number of CEOs have left their jobs. Eskom, Transnet, Transaction Capital, Tiger Brands, Bell Equipment, Pick and Pay, Nampak, and The Public Protector have all left. Why are CEOs leaving? Do you think this is a trend or just a coincidence? 
You know, first of all, there's an element of cashing in going on after a bull market. Okay? Right. I think if you look at the private sector, we've seen an extraordinarily long bull market and option schemes have been very kind, if not too kind, to CEOs. And so when you've got to 10 times your aspirant limit of wealth, you may as well go home and have a peaceful <laughs> life. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So that's one cause, maybe. But I think that it's a good thing to have CEOs change more frequently if it's by design, not by some other force. So there are companies which are very successful in South Africa, which have limited term CEOs, and then they leave and they're not allowed back. Right. We don't seem to have that across the board. I think that there's a complexity about running a business or a government department or an administration in South Africa, which we've never faced before. There are exogenous variables over which you can have no control as the CEO. The South African risk, the uh, the impact of energy costs and labor costs, variables that are outside your control as a CEO of an operating business, I speak only from a business point of view, which makes the CEO's job very difficult to plan. And so I think being a CEO is not the most popular place in the world anymore because you are frequently attacked for things that you really can't do much about in a world that has got risks beyond our control and beyond our borders that impose themselves on us. Like we can mine ourselves into a state, wrong word perhaps, yes. <laughs> but we can't get the minerals exported. Okay, yes. so what do you do about that if you're the CEO? Yes. But I also think it's a good thing. We need to make space. We need younger people in charge. What do you think on this one? Just by the way, I forgot the big one, which was the CEO of Process Nasparis. Yeah. This is South Africa's biggest company. So we need to add that to the list. I think there's a very big difference between the private sector and the public sector CEO departures. Of course. The, the ESCOM and Transnet situations are just extraordinary and unique. And my guess is they are a consequence of just an impossible situation. It's just impossible. The attitude of government towards the state-owned enterprise is just different from the attitude that shareholders have. Yeah. And even in the private sector group, there are quite big differences. You know, they're very successful. So pick and pay, first interim loss. Loss ever. Ever. But I agree with you, the business environment in South Africa was always much more difficult than anywhere on the planet Earth. No. <laughs> well, not, not necessarily. But, but it's got worse. <laughs> you don't have to look too deep into pick and pay to discover that a lot of this is ascribed to things that they couldn't have planned for, like the cost of energy, the cost of getting rid of food that couldn't be refrigerated, yep. all of these kinds of things. I don't know enough about it to delve into it. If you talk about Eskom and Transnet and all of these big SOE CEO jobs, you're literally walking in there with your expertise tied behind your back. The very purpose for which you are hired becomes null and void in the presence of political will and purpose, which is not often aligned with the commercial functionality of a massive operating system. Okay, and so where does the skill set intersect with the purpose of the entity? And if you don't have that intersection, and if you can't agree a mandate and then give that mandate and that CEO space to put into effect that mandate over time, then you disqualify its possibility of success almost from the outset. And who wants the publicity? Who wants to go into a situation where they know they will be told what to do regardless of what merit they bring to the discussion? 
you know, it's very instructive that not only the CEO of Translate, but also the FD and the CEO of the largest Translate division, the absolutely crucial rail transport division, they've all left. But this doesn't stop the presidency from talking very openly about a new transport policy, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I just thought that was just typical, you know, because, I mean, normally you would want the CEO of the biggest parastatal in the transport sector to be involved in those discussions because they're going to have to put these into practice, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you would want their input, but they just went ahead without there even being a CEO of Transnet at the helm. So it shows the massively different attitude that the sort of political class has towards state-owned enterprises to the attitude that they have towards the private sector, or at least that shareholders in both cases have towards their charges. If you look at, for example, this new SAE bill that's uh, just been passed, I think, in Parliament, it essentially centralizes power and decision-making in the presidency, essentially. The structure of centralizing power at the top is not going to enable innovation, competitiveness, and fleet-footedness on the ground for the operating entities at the bottom. Okay, So if you have one shareholder which has an agenda driven by political popularity, it cannot preside over a shareholding structure where it has total discretion, the appointment of all directors and boards and things of that nature. So what we're doing is centralizing power in a failed ecosystem instead of distributing power to the point of contact with real commerce so that they've got a fighting chance of competing because the next step is now to invite private sector participation. And that's fraught with opportunity, but also difficulty in the sense that we cannot privatize everything here. We only find solutions for 5% of the population if we do not have the state as a significant player crossing the bridge between commercial sustainability and transformation necessity and developmental mandates. And so it's a complex thing which requires more people at the coalface, less people in the boardroom. And we're not going there. Great point. I think the SOE bill, just by the way, what's happened is that the period for public commentary has opened and now just closed. But the legislation is sitting there. It seems like it's a shoe in. It's definitely going to happen. What was interesting to me about that legislation is that it was actually presented, a colleague of mine, Marian Merton, told me, to the Zonda Commission. And the Zonic Commission, in its final report, actually expressed an opinion on it. And the opinion that the Zonic Commission expressed was, this is not good. (laughs) (laughs) You know, they said explicitly, this doesn't change anything. This doesn't change. Of course it doesn't. Although it's presented as a solution to the state capture of state-owned enterprises, it actually changes very little in the structure of the appointment process that solves that problem. And then they went on to have their own proposal, yeah. which was very South African. And it was, we'll have some somebody from business and somebody from the unions and a couple of people from government, some lawyers, a couple of experts, and then we'll put them into a group and then they have to make the proposal about who should be on the board and who should uh, run the organizations. And the government can say yes or no, but basically the decision has to be transparent and open and all of these sort of words that we get so used to in South Africa. So the question is, how much of that interpretation of how the board selection process has been transferred into the SOE bill? Can I just tell you how much? None. None. Zero. (laughs) Nothing. Okay. You can't take a sort of functional organizational, governmental organizational structure 
and suddenly call it a business structure because you change the name to company and subsidiary and holding company and such terms of a superfluous, what do you call it, superficial yeah, 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 yeah. adaptation of the description <laughs> and think that you're going to change the functionality of the thing. So um, all the same and we have to change who's in charge. Okay. You know what I want to talk about is risk because okay. every day I just see more and more violence, whether it's on a global war kind of level or locally the cops shooting the baddies and the baddies now shooting back at the cops and hostages ha- held on world stages and hostages held in mines. And this risk, the good old market understands and accounts for. Right. Treasury bills are at their highest yield ever at over 5%. Uh, don't get the sort of pricing mechanism. It is complicated, but... Well, it's simple, actually. What happens is that a bond, such as the T-bill is or the RSA 10-year bond is, pays a fixed coupon. That is to say, if you buy a bond for 100 rand, it pays a 10 rand coupon, it's got a 10% yield, okay? But that 10 rand yield is fixed. So if people lose faith in the bond, or in other words, anticipate high risk, they sell the bond, the price goes down from 100 to 90, but the 10 rand coupon stays the same. So the yield, 10 over 90, is higher than the yield 10 over 100. So that's why higher yields indicate a higher risk and a lower price for bonds, because what it pays out is constant. Was that clear? Yes. No, no, that is very clear. The only thing that's not clear about it is this word coupon. Because I know about coupons. You used to get coupons <laughs> and cornflakes. No, don't, <laughs> don't, don't embarrass yourself. Is that, that's no, not the same thing, right? We're not talking <laughs> about not those kind of coupons. It's an interest <laughs> payment. Coupon is a payment, right? It's, it's what you get. It's the, what you earn. When you buy a bond, it's got a yield at issue, yeah. which is the, the amount of interest you get paid divided by the price that you pay. Okay. And how, how big is this uh, bond, these bonds? I mean, are there, are there a lot of them? Huge. Okay. Huge. Okay. One, uh, 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 big, uh, bigger than you think. Bigger than you think. Bigger than any serial coupon market you've ever come across in your life. Okay. So, in fact, it, it was once a good barometer of the risk in South Africa because our bond market in the good old days used to be about the sixth most liquid bond in the world. So, not only is it a huge market, but it's a deeply liquid market. You can trade in and out of South African bonds still, I think, in huge numbers. And so, just to give you some numbers, the RSA 10-year bond is now uh, up at about 10.8%. It's reversed its declining trend. In other words, the perception of risk is going up and up from its lows. It declined from 2000, and then it's uh, dipped, and at the bottom it came up again. And as I said, the T-bills in the US are at their highest ever now. Just to put a little bit more space in there, the highest that the 10-year bond in South Africa has traded in yield terms is 20.7%. We're only at 13% now. And that was in 1998, okay, which was 25 years ago. So there's lots of space for that yield to increase, which means for us as a country that the cost of servicing capital has increased substantially. Okay, so if the yield on our bonds is 10%, and it goes to 20%, we've doubled the cost of servicing debt that you raise in the bond market. So the risk is being captured in the bond market, I think, fairly accurately around the world. And I think it's a good resting place for your money now, but it might not be finished going the wrong way.
Mark, is that because you believe essentially that we live in a zero-sum world? Maybe you just just a little you bit. Jimmy always seems to get philosophical on me. <laughs> you always have to ask me questions which are way above my understanding. Maybe you're just a bit miserable. Maybe if you just got a bit happier about things, then bond yields would decrease. Yeah, well, I'm happy enough with where the yields are now. Let me put it that way. I don't want them to get any higher. Okay, so I had a number. And the number was that 76,903 learners are going to start writing with Chick next week. So I wanted to wish them well. Okay. Well. And I wanted to say, let's hope we end up with fit-for-purpose education outcomes and get our people to work. So go metrics, study, but study, study, study. Yes. And then there's another organization. I forget who, what they called, but we also want them to go hard. Oh, yes. The Springboks. <laughs> the Springboks. You know, Ox and Chair, okay, who was our prop that got us the penalty, which won us the game, essentially. Yeah, yeah, that won us the game. Yeah, yeah. He's become rather famous for saying, scrums aren't won on salad, okay, because he eats cake, okay. And you can see the result of this in yes, his yes, overpowering yes. physique. So my advice to the Springboks is, eat some cake. Have a rest, because there's a big fight night on Saturday. <laughs> okay. Okay. Good enough. Mark, thank you so much. Thanks, Tim. Next time. Cool, man. Cheers. This show is part of the Africa Podcast Network. The biggest pod network on the continent. For sales inquiries, please contact us at info at africapodcastnetwork.com.